This week on uh, Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Japanese folklore where we'll see the five-second rule not apply in the most dangerous way possible and how one of the worst tragedies of feudal Japan was really great for one young couple's dating life. The creature this week is a spiky danger turtle from France who's still mad about not having a ticket for Noah's Ark. This is Myths and Legends, episode 161, Karma. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. We have two very different stories today. Both are focused on the consequences of our actions, though. The first one is 100% a fairy tale. We'll just jump right in. Making dumplings, making dumplings. The old woman was making dumplings from rice flour. It was her defining character trait and her number two hobby, right behind laughing. Laughing while making dumplings though? That's called living your best life. That's what she was doing on a Tuesday afternoon. Making dumplings. Making dumplings to share, making dumplings to eat. It was all making dumplings and it was all good. What was not good, however, was as she formed the last dumpling, she wasn't paying attention to her other little stack of dumplings. As her hand moved, she accidentally swatted the dumpling off the pile and it plopped on the ground of her shack. So I'm pretty sure that the five second rule doesn't apply to dirt floors, but the little old woman who liked laughing and dumplings felt differently. She dove for it, but the dumpling was already on the move. She crawled on her hands and knees, but the dumpling was faster. Then it vanished. The woman sat up. What happened? Then she saw it. The hole. It wasn't a large hole, only about the circumference of a dumpling. But, surprise, surprise, that was the necessary circumference in which to lose a dumpling. I can imagine her biting her lip and thinking about it. You know what? It was just dirt. She could rinse it off. She wasn't too proud for this. No one would have to know. The woman jammed her hand into the hole and dropped. Immediately, all around her, her dirt floor cracked before dropping out from under her. She tumbled with a thin layer of earth through not a cavernous underground, but through the sky. After falling for what would be like 200 feet, she landed hard on the road. And she was fine. She wasn't even hurt. Wide-eyed, she looked around. Okay. She looked up, but couldn't see what would have been the floor of her home. Just sky. She looked around her down her road sloping off. This was really weird. Then she gasped, the dumpling. She scrambled to her feet and took off down the road. There might be something about this land that makes dropping from a height of a skyscraper a survivable event, but it doesn't mean it would give you years of cardio training. In minutes, the old woman was winded and leaning next to a Jesus statue. Okay, short diversion. When talking about the Jesus statues, we're gonna go down a cute tragic rabbit hole. Jizo-san, or Jizo-sama, is a divinity in Japanese Buddhism, and the Jizo statue is one that's not just in the strange land below a dumpling maker's dirt floor, but a statue that peppers modern-day Japan, 
Oftentimes you'll see them clothed. They look adorable. I linked some pictures in an article explaining them. Unfortunately, if they're clothed, it's because something terrible has happened. As far back as the 14th century, there was a belief that when a child died, they had not accrued enough good karma on earth. So they were sent to sort of a limbo where they had to stack stone towers to cross the Sanzu River into the afterlife. Demons, being demons, repeatedly smacked down the stone towers, dooming children to constantly rebuild them. Enter Jiso Bosatsu. He's a bodhisattva, and instead of traveling on to enlightenment, he chose to stay back and help the countless children stuck in limbo. He would hide children in the sleeves of his robes and take them across the river to the afterlife. So, when you see a clothed statue of Jiso, sometimes with a pile of stones next to it, it's usually because a parent has lost a child and wants to watch over them and help them pass on in the afterlife. It appears to be mainly the cases of miscarriages or very young children, but the Jiso statue has been seen as a way to have closure for such a tragic event. In addition to his role for children, he's also seen as generally a protector for women and travelers. All right, we'll jump back in after that bit of cultural relevance and catch up with a little old woman who likes making dumplings, both a woman and a traveler. Oh, Lord Jiso, did you see my dumpling? The old woman asked the completely inanimate and non-living statue. Yeah, it's a... Wait, how did you know I could talk? Can statues talk in your world? The surprised statue replied. Nope, the old woman said. So you, what, like, just talk to statues on a regular basis on the chance that they'll talk back? The statue asked, cocking a stone eyebrow. Guess so the woman remarked. Fair enough, the statue said, and then looked down the road. Yeah, he did see her dirt-caked dumpling rolling down the road. Kind of surprised she was still looking for it, but she should really stop looking for it. Further down the road was an oni. The woman cocked an eyebrow. A what now? It was an oni. A Japanese ogre, demon, troll, take your pick because they're all the same in this instance, and they are all terrible. They're usually bright red, with big teeth and crazy-looking eyes. And these ones wore tiger-skin loincloths, so they were pretty fashionable, I guess. Oh, and they eat people, so seriously, just leave the dumpling behind, and... Oh, cool. The old woman was leaving. Don't listen to Jizo-san. He was just the protector of children, women, and travelers. What did he know? Around the time she approached Jizo statue number three she still hadn't gotten that the situation was perhaps a bit more dangerous than she thought, despite Jiso-san's incessant and urgent warnings that she needed to turn back and find some way out of here because the... Oh, no. He glanced up to the road ahead. He told the woman to get behind his sleeve. The oni was coming. The woman looked up and saw a squat, hairy red oni, who I've compared to, like, a more demonic Elmo, sniffing the air lumbering down the road ahead. The Oni bowed low before the statue. He might be a vicious, human-eating demon, but he was a polite, vicious, human-eating demon. Good day, Jizo-san, the Oni remarked. He said he smelled a human somewhere. The statue? Jizo would have shook his head if he, you know, wasn't a statue. He towed the line between truth and lie when he said that perhaps the Oni was mistaken. Ah, uh, no, I I definitely smell the smell of mankind. What was that like? <laughs> Callous selfishness and sweat, was it? The Oni said, sniffing the air. From behind the stone sleeve, 
The woman chuckled. Ha! <laughs> Mankind. She was a woman. Stupid Oni. Seriously? The statue of Jiso said. Not turning around to show his nonplussed look because he couldn't turn around? In an instant, the Oni grabbed the woman's robe and pulled her from behind the statue. She was still chuckling for some reason. Come on, what are you going to do with her? She's just an old woman. You better not hurt her, the statue said. The Oni was about to reply with an, or what, but looked down the road. He saw that statues of the Bodhisattva lined it, as far as he could see in either direction. I'm not going to hurt her. She's just going to come with me. She's going to cook for us, the Oni said. The old woman shrugged. Huh, didn't sound so bad. They're demons, honey. They lie, the statue said. And then he directed his gaze back to the Oni. Don't hurt her. If they did, he would be angry. The Oni started to laugh, but saw the look in Jiso-san's eyes. He said he wouldn't. He promised. And the Oni actually kept that promise. He took her to his home by the river and placed a paddle in her hands. He said that Oni ate way more than normal humans, so this was something that would make her time here easier. When she stirred rice with that paddle, she only needed one grain to get things started. One grain would turn to two, two to four, four to eight, and so on, doubling until she stopped or pretty much the whole world was consumed by rice. Seriously, don't mess around with exponential growth. The Oni's tastes were simple, and whether it was out of fear of Jizo-san or simply because the Oni wanted someone to cook for him, the old woman wasn't threatened. She had her room, time to herself, and pretty much zero freedom to travel. I mean, the Oni was nice, but he couldn't have his cook escaping, come on. She stayed there until the days stacked one upon another, enough to be weeks, and the weeks piled up into years. Soon, she lost track of just how long she'd been in the service of the Oni, but what she did know was that she was extremely lonely. The Oni was kind enough, but she hadn't spoken to another human in years. I don't know what the impetus was for her escape, but one afternoon, while the Oni and his friends were sleeping off their all-carb lunch, you know, the one they had after their all-carb breakfast, the old woman tucked the paddle into her belt and took a step outside the small home. She found the small boat that the Oni kept for crossing the river, and she strained as she pushed. She grunted so loudly that the Oni roused inside his home. He looked to the old woman's cot, but she wasn't there. He looked at the kitchen, but the pots were clean and set out to dry. He looked to the boat, and it was gone. He leapt to his feet and raced outside to see the woman almost halfway across the river. Now, the Oni can't swim, which makes living next to a body of water kind of an odd choice, but whatever. They saw that their one boat was gone and knew that there was only one way to stop the woman. They started drinking. Before the woman reached the halfway point, the river was nearly empty. With the other bank of the river in sight, the boat began to scrape on the muddy bottom of the river. In moments, she came to a stop. She was just a few feet short. The paddle in her belt, she leapt from the boat into the muddy river bottom, the mud sucking at her feet. She lurched into those steps, but she would never make it. She was stuck in the mud of the riverbed. The Oni had won. She turned with a sneer. They might have stopped her, but they would have to come get her. Then, something unexpected happened. The woman looked at herself, standing like a mud-caked samurai with a rice paddle in hand, making the scariest face she could muster. The Oni were on the muddy banks on the other side of the river, a river's worth of water causing their stomachs to swell. 
cheeks puffed and eyes popping. And the old woman, she laughed at just the absurdity of it all. The Oni, watching the woman caked in mud, cracking up for no obvious reason, couldn't contain themselves. They, too, started laughing. And as they did, they couldn't hold it anymore. They spewed up the river water. In seconds, the old woman was caught up in the flow of the river and free from the mud. She gripped the rice paddle and slid onto the banks on the opposite side of the river. The Oni on the other side were laughing even harder now, wiping tears from their eyes. And the lead Oni the one that had captured her years ago, decades ago maybe, gave the old woman a slight nod. She nodded back, rose to her feet, and started her walk. The lamb was more beautiful now, strangely, and as the sun dried and warmed her, the old woman thought about what she wanted most. She thought about home. Off in the distance, past a line of Jiso statues that, curiously, did not talk, she saw her house, a dot on the horizon. In minutes or hours, she was standing before it. She opened the door, and it was just as she had left it when the floor dropped out. She looked back outside, and she was no longer in that strange land. There were people passing by. The hustle and bustle of her town continued on, with no knowledge of where she had been or what she had been through. The woman smiled, waved to some friends, and went back to work in her kitchen, making dumplings. This time, though, she was mindful of her hands, and she didn't stack the dumplings near the edge of the table. Remembering the paddle, the woman was able to make more food than she ever thought possible. She gave to all who needed it, and the goodness of her food was known far and wide, to the point that, from the surplus, she became the richest person in all of Japan. Even with her wealth, she didn't change a thing, and remained filled with a simple joy from her simple life, making dumplings in her humble home. Okay, so I try not to talk about the meanings behind stories. Generally, I like to let a story just be but this one seems curiously similar to stuff I found in my research. Remember when I talked about the history and meaning behind the Jiso statues? Well, that seems to fit pretty closely with the old woman's experience. Personally, I think that the old woman died that day on the floor of her dirt home as she was reaching for that lost dumpling. She fell down into limbo where she met with Jiso-san. It would explain the otherworldliness of that land. The limbo, as we talked about, contains Jisosan trying to shield people from the demons and help people pass in the folds of his robes. And the old woman hid behind Jisos' sleeve when the Oni came around. When she was taken by the Oni, she wasn't tortured, but like the children, she was just subjected to several years of toil, whatever karmic deficit was still present from her time on earth. She didn't mind it until it was over. I don't know if she realized that the only thing standing in her way was her or if no one gets a free ride across the river, but she made her escape, and she succeeded. Like the story of the children in the robe, the woman crossed the river, but she went back home, right? Well, maybe. Maybe it wasn't her home, though. Maybe her afterlife looked like her life. Maybe she was completely happy in her small community, recognized making dumplings and rice, 
in her little kitchen for friends and family. Maybe that was her paradise. It may be a bit of a stretch, but I feel like this reading holds up to scrutiny and it makes the story more interesting and kind of touching in retrospect. The second story today is not a fairy tale, like at all. It's linked to a very clear historical event, but that will be right after this. Youth calls to youth, beauty to beauty, love to love. This is the law. According to legend, a kimono was commissioned for a 13-year-old girl's birthday. It was red with an embroidered crane with white, pink, and purple flowers flying in all directions. Her father had made it just for her, but tragedy struck. She died before she ever got to wear it. The family mourned, and the father, who couldn't bear to look at the kimono, sold it to another man who was looking for a gift for his daughter. Curiously enough, she too died before she was able to wear it. When the third girl died before she was able to wear it, word began to spread of the cursed kimono. No one wanted it, but no one knew what to do with it. They didn't want any more girls to die because of this odd, beautiful article of clothing. Finally, a priest took it, not to wear, but to destroy. The flames were nearly as beautiful as the kimono, with sparks of red jumping into the sky and into the courtyard and onto the wood and paper buildings. That was March 2nd, 1657. The very real fire that started because of that legendarily cursed kimono would burn for three days, going on to consume 70% of Edo, the capital of Japan, and taking 100,000 lives with it before it burned out. It would become known as one of the greatest disasters in Tokyo's history, Edo eventually turning into the city of Tokyo. And it was nearly comparable to the firebombing of World War II in a city that had a population of 300,000 before the 17th century fire, nearly one in three people were killed. The Aoya, his wife, and his daughter were not among the killed. The poor, hardworking Yaoya, or the grocer, was among the lucky ones. He only lost his house and all of his possessions. He and his family escaped the flames unscathed. But before the end of the month, they were sleeping on the floor of a nearby Buddhist temple, one that had thrown open its doors to the city of Edo, while the residents figured out how they were going to rebuild their lives among the ashes. It said that there were five supremely beautiful girls in Edo at the time, and among them, the Aoya's daughter, Oshishi, was the most beautiful. She found a simple rhythm to life, lived on the floor of the temple while their home was being rebuilt. She would wake up early and bathe in a spring by the temple before slipping on her blue gown and combing her hair. It was the best part of the acolyte's day when she passed him on the way back from her bath. He had noticed her while chastising himself for noticing her. He was going to be a monk. He was going to live in celibacy. It was impossible. Still, he found himself thinking of her when he was working eating, even praying. It became worse and better when Oshishi was ordered by her father to start sweeping the temple to show the monks gratitude for giving them a place to live. Oshishi didn't mind. She swept, and as she did so, she sang. She sang until the young acolyte couldn't take it any longer. He stood in front of Oshishi and said hello.
Youth calls to youth. Beauty calls to beauty. Love calls to love. This is the law. It was three months later, and the couple stole away from the temple. She slid her hand into his and hugged him close. She had loved him from the moment he walked up to her while she swept, saying that awkward hello. He was beautiful, gentle, and kind. They would find more excuses to be in each other's presence and talk, until one night, he roused her secretly from sleep. They stole out to the temple grove, and they were together. Over the next few months, they met up more and more. They learned everything they could about one another, but never spoke of the future. He was to be a monk. She was one of the five great beauties of Edo, and she was her family's hope. Her father was not a rich man, but he was a social climber, and he was already eyeing marriage prospects among men from more prosperous families. In a few generations, his family would be among the rulers of the city. They could never know of her love, of how she had been with this young acolyte. Together, they found happiness and misery. They thought that they must have been cursed by the gods to be so in love, yet so destined to have their lives take them so far apart. They clung to each other and, despite knowing it wasn't possible, pledged themselves to each other across the lifetimes. She knew it was coming. The temple began to clear out. Homes were rebuilt. Life in the city began to resume. The family of a humble grocer had to wait. But finally, nearly a year after the fire, their home was finished. That night, the couple trembled, embraced, and reminded each other of their vows, of their love. Their vows were nothing, Oshishi knew. The family resumed their daily life. And even though the temple was close, the young woman couldn't think of any excuse to be there. A life unfolded before her as she kept to her new room, soaking her clothes with tears. She could see it. She was the wife of a modest merchant. No one important, but someone with more riches and renown than her family. She would have children, and she would have happiness of a sort. He was a priest at the temple, with acolytes of his own. Both would be respected, but both would be missing something. They would pass each other on the street, and they would remember those nights that they were together in the temple grove. The Aoyo began to worry. His daughter grew pale and thin. She stopped eating, and then she stopped crying. That was the most troubling thing to the parents. She wouldn't talk to them, so they didn't know what troubled her, but they feared madness. Unfortunately, it wasn't madness. She was thinking clearly, with frightful logic. She wanted those nights back, the ones in the temple grove. She wanted to be with the man she loved. There was a way to make that happen. Her parents were surprised when, the next morning, Oshishi rose early and got ready. She ate with them and went about her daily duties. The parents didn't know what had happened to their daughter, but not wanting to jinx it at all, didn't say anything. Instead, they let her go on living her life as if the past few months hadn't happened. She started to smile again, and after two weeks, the Aoya and his wife could breathe. Whatever had been going on with their daughter, it was over now. Of course, 
they didn't know where she had been going during those brief moments she had to herself during the day or what she had been collecting. For the plan to work, it had to be total. And as she finished stuffing the floor with the dry straw, she knew that it was enough. She made a small pile and placed the charcoals on the top of the heap. This would do it. This would bring her back to him. The solution was so easy. To see him again, to have those nights back, to make their plan to run away together, she needed to set another fire. Her home would be consumed, and they would be forced to live in the temple again. Probably for longer this time, since rebuilding the last home had taken all but Oshishi's dowry. She struck the flint and smiled. The hay caught, and so did the charcoal. She waited for the wall, but she didn't have to wait very long. The flames shot up and billowed out to the ceilings. She screamed, barely able to contain her joy. Fire! She had made a path to the front door. That and her parents' room would be consumed last. She had to make the fire move quickly, though. In the past year, after the fire, the city of Edo had expanded its fire protections to the common person, whereas before it had just been for the nobles. It had to consume the house before they got there, or else she and her family would be poverty-stricken and sleeping in a burned-out husk. She fled from the front door and put out the flame on her gown as she saw the neighborhood beginning to gather, hands over their mouths. Oshishi forced tears and ran to her parents. But they weren't her parents. They were her neighbors. She looked to another couple. No, not them. And another. No, no, no. She turned back to the house and ran Hands grabbed her as she screamed, and her screams matched the cries inside. Her parents hadn't made it out. She fought against the people holding her back, but they pinned her to the ground. She wasn't going back in there. It was a death trap. Oshishi screamed that it wasn't supposed to be like this. They were supposed to make it out. She had planned it so they could escape. Oshishi had done her job well, though and the fire caught quickly. The house collapsed just as the firefighters arrived. Oshishi didn't try to run, not even when the authorities came and asked about the charcoal hidden by the walls or about what she had said regarding the flames as her parents died. Fires had always been a serious matter in a city of paper and wood, but a little over a year out from the worst fire the city had ever known, where a third of the city's population had burned to death, and the girl had done it on purpose, the authorities saw no other choice than to make an example out of her. A child might escape the charges, but Oshishi was 15, and she had taken a lover. She told them about the acolyte, about their love, but the rulers didn't care about any of that. They cared about the girl that burned down her house. What made her do it was immaterial, so she was tied up and made to stand on a bridge for all the city to see, for all the city to hear her story. She was given enough water to keep her alive, but that was it. Her skin baked in the sun, and her legs gave out, but she had to keep standing. The acolyte would pass by the bridge, and she would look at him, hopefully, but he never looked back. He wasn't coming for her. He wasn't going to help her escape. Their oaths had been the hopeful, empty words of children. He had left her when she had given up everything for him. She didn't scream. 
as they dragged her from the bridge to the pyre. It was the only fitting punishment that they could think of. She didn't scream as they lit the wood, and the smoke rose into the sky. She only said, it was all for love, and died. The original story ends, youth calls to youth, beauty calls to beauty, love calls to love. This is the law, and the law was the undoing of Oshishi. So, that was a hard left in a tragedy town. I'm pretty sure that story is legendary. And honestly, it's not one that I originally planned on doing for the show, but it just kind of stuck with me for a while after reading it. It just kind of takes you along for a ride. Next week, we're staying in Japan for the pseudo-legendary, mostly historical story of the 47 Ronin. They were the samurai of a powerful lord who was wronged, and they plot for a year to bring justice for their master. It is an incredibly famous story, and I was surprised by how much there was to it. It's a one-off episode I'm pretty proud of, so check it out next week. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of half an ounce of edible glitter, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that aren't sugar glitter, and therefore more sticky because apparently making glitter harder to remove was something that needed to happen. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the paluda from French folklore. The paluda, alternately called le velou, which is, I guess, French for shaggy beast, is what happens when you cross a porcupine with a dragon. About the size of a dragon, the shaggy beast is actually not covered in hair, but little hair-like quills that will stiffen when the creature senses danger and then shoot off, poisoning anything they touch. It's roughly turtle-shaped with a scaly neck, dragon-like head, and snake color. In addition to its toxic, invulnerable hairstyle, it also has searing breath that can wither crops, the ability to create floods from simply stepping into a river, killing with just a strike from its long tail, and breathing out fire and acid and poison, like your standard boring dragons. A creature like this shouldn't exist, right? Well, guess who would agree with you on that one? Noah, of Noah's Ark fame. He made a judgment call way back when, and decided that the creature that shot poison in all directions and breathed fire wasn't a great addition to his wooden boat full of the remnant of life on Earth. So he turned the Paluta away, an act that would have been for the better if it wasn't a failure. Noticing the rain was getting pretty bad, the Paluta took cover in a cave, moving deeper into the earth, away from the floodwaters. When the waters receded, the Paluta decided to play it safe and wait for another, I don't know, 3,000 years, just until the coast was clear. When it emerged, it saw that once again the earth was populated by humans, and, angry at being left behind and not allowed safe passage on a boat full of animals to accidentally kill, the Pluta decided to make up for lost time by, you know, killing everything. Kind of proving why it shouldn't have been allowed on the boat, but whatever. The Pluta made its last mistake when it killed the fiancé of just some rando guy. The guy chased down the Pluta as it walked away and cut off its tail as a provocation, which killed it instantly. 
yeah, the insanely deadly dragon porcupine turtle had its heart in its tail. Turns out someone, at some point in the thousands of years this thing had been alive, should have just tried not hacking at the invulnerable parts of the monster covered in poison. Who knew? That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.